0: It is wonderful to see you all here this morning. I want to welcome you to this time of praise. If you're worshiping with us on SOCC.TV, we're glad you've joined us as well. Tim and Tobin played that song at my dad's funeral. That has a really tender sound to me. I heard my dad sing that song I don't know how many times throughout his life. It was his favorite, and and, uh, the message of that is so powerful to me that God watches over us as he watches over the sparrow. And God watched over Daniel. I'm glad you've come back for part two. Some of you even said, I'm looking forward to part two. I'm glad people listen. I didn't know for sure. So (laughs) So we're in Daniel chapter two, uh, and it's the second part of the sermon. Did you know if you live a typical lifespan that you will spend 20 years of it asleep? And during that 20 years of sleep, they estimate that we will have about 300,000 dreams. Most we don't remember Some are nightmarish, we wake up frightened, but we can't even remember the details, but we know that they have troubled us. Such was the case with Nebuchadnezzar. Ecclesiastes 5.3 says, too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words make you a fool. The proverbial statement from the Quill of Solomon was true on both counts for Nebuchadnezzar. He was very active at the time. Nebuchadnezzar was in war with Syria at the time uh, of this particular dream and so his foggy dream left him troubled and, and worried. What's worse, the demand that he made of his advisory council was nothing short of foolish and unrealistic. Now if you weren't here last Sunday, let me catch you up. This is the Cliff's Notes version of, of, of what happened. Uh, the king demanded of his wise counsel in, in Babylon these words. He said, now I've had a dream, but I can't quite remember. It's a little bit foggy. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me the dream first, and then I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And if you can't tell me what the dream is, then I know you're all a bunch of charlatans and quacks. So be careful before you answer. The executioner is standing at the door, and he's got all your names. That's basically what Nebuchadnezzar said to the wise counsel. And, of course, there was nobody that can comply with the king's unrealistic demand. So, Nebuchadnezzar ordered their execution. We pick up the story this morning where Arioch, the commander of the king's army, is coming to assassinate Daniel. And since this sermon series doesn't end this week, I assume you all know that Daniel survived. But why he survived is the heartbeat of the story. In chapter 2, verse 14, this is what we read. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke with him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh demand or decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, from here on out, we will know them better by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Alan Phillips tells me that research indicates that these were Babylonian realtor names, your shack, my shack and a bungalow. Kind of makes sense, I, I, I think so. <laughs> the text goes on and says, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. I am so impressed with Daniel and his approach to a de- delicate but deadly situation. I know I would have overreacted in that moment. I would have said of all the harebrained, ignorant, ridiculous things, who does Nebuchadnezzar think he is? King of the world or something? And those would have been the last words out of my mouth before Arioch sliced me in two. You see, in last week's message, we explored the problems associated with overreacting. Just remember, when we overreact to anything, it never ends well. And here's where the lessons from Daniel begin. Daniel didn't overreact. He responded reasonably. Remember back in chapter 1, it said that everybody liked him, that the king's officials enjoyed being around Daniel. I'm convinced that he had a pleasant demeanor. I'm convinced that he had awesome people skills. You know, he could have disarmed the contentious moment with a word or a smile or a gracious demeanor, and that's what he did. So here's what I want you to see as we go through this part. There is a response here that is worth imitating. Daniel's response is worth imitating. When the commander of the king's guard walks into your space with a sword drawn, your first response is critical. I like how the Bible desc- describes Daniel's response. It says he spoke with wisdom and tact. Did you notice that when we read through? He spoke with wisdom and tact. Now, I want you to remember, too, that when Daniel was deported, he was about 16 years old, went through three years of training. This is at the very beginning of his palace service. Daniel is just about 19 years old at the time, and he speaks with wisdom and tact. Learn these things early in your life, and it will go well with you. So let's talk about wisdom first. Some people equate wisdom, intelligence, and knowledge, but they are not the same. They are connected, yes, but they are not equals. And we don't have time to unpack these words in all their detail, but I want you to distinguish them like this for this morning. Intelligence is the capacity to learn, knowledge is the information we learn, and wisdom is the ability to apply what we learn, okay? In other words, wisdom operates much like common sense. It's making the right choice at the right time for the right reasons. And what we see in Scripture is that Daniel excelled in all three. But in this moment of crisis, it was his ability to apply his knowledge and to apply his intellect to the situation and to use godly common sense to find a way through a deadly dilemma. He never compromised God's word, but he found a way to present it beautifully. Now, we frequently talk about the importance of wisdom, but here's one thing I've learned. I can pass along wise knowledge, but I cannot pass along wisdom. A teacher can provide us with wise truths, but a teacher cannot make us wise. There is a difference. Wisdom is a unique situation to every individual. Wisdom must be sought. It must be learned. It must be experienced. And thankfully, God has offered to us the gift of wisdom. The book of James says, if you'll pray and ask God, he will give it liberally. And God has provided us with wise lessons in his word. So not only does God give us wisdom as an answer to our prayers, God gives us wisdom in Scripture. Now, we read about wisdom a lot in the books of Psalms. Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. We read wisdom throughout the scriptures. But those three are a part of what is called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the word wisdom appears more than 50 times in the book of Proverbs alone. And it is my personal opinion that wisdom and knowing Jesus Christ go hand in hand. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when you know him, when you're trying to emulate him in your life, You will grow quickly in wisdom. But apart from him, it's it's hard, if if not almost impossible, to gain great wisdom. Try this experiment sometime. It doesn't work every time. But if you're reading through the book of Proverbs, every time you come across the word wisdom, substitute the name Jesus for it. Okay? Like I say, it won't work every time. But here's a couple examples. Proverbs 2.2. Turn your ear to wisdom. Turn your ear to Jesus. Or 2.12, wisdom will save you from wicked men. Jesus will save you from wicked men. Or 3.13, blessed is the man who finds wisdom. Blessed is the man who finds Jesus. You get the idea. It's just an interesting study because it reminds us then that finding wisdom and following Jesus are on parallel paths. They go hand in hand. Secondly, Daniel was a man of tact and diplomacy. Tact is the ability to know what needs to be said as well as when and how to say it. If you've ever been on the receiving end of someone's tactless tirade, then you know how valuable such a virtue is. And may I suggest that tact, diplomacy, is an outgrowth or a byproduct of wisdom. The wiser you are, the more tact you'll have. Daniel wisely understood that Arioch was merely the messenger. He was not the source of the problem. He was just the messenger. Have you ever seen somebody yell at the person behind the counter? The person who maybe is, is trying to check you out at a store because you're frustrated with either a purchase or a problem or something like that, and, and you're taking it out on the person behind the counter who has no control over the decisions that are made or the policy that is made. Daniel understood that. He understood that Ariok was not the problem. He was just the messenger, and he had a, he had a bad job he had to do. And so Daniel treated him graciously. Knowledge without wisdom, truth without tact, never has a happy ending. We would do well to learn this important guideline of getting along with people be tactful with everyone. It doesn't cost you a thing to be diplomatic or tactful. Tact requires a little bit more time and mental energy up front, that's true, but it will save you an enormous amount of time in relational repairs and apologies. Here's some great thoughtful quotes on tact. Hugh Allen said, tact is the rare ability to keep silent while two friends are arguing and you know both of them are wrong." Howard Newton said, tact is the knack of making a point without making an enemy. President Harry Truman said, tact is the ability to step on a man's toes without messing up the shine on his shoes. And I like this one, tact is thinking twice before saying nothing. Whether you're the boss, the employee, the spouse, the friend, or the classmate, tact is vital to preserving any relationship. Now how did Daniel demonstrate tact? Did you notice? Did you follow what he did? This is really insightful. He asked a question before jumping to conclusions. He basically said, if if I'm going to die, can I know the reason why? Now, that's a reasonable question. You know, if you're going to be put to death, you ought to know why you're going to be executed. We too often don't have all the pieces before we draw our conclusions or before we react. Understand the why, first and foremost. When you understand the why, you won't necessarily respond with indignation. And notice this, Daniel didn't try to talk the king out of his decree, which would have suggested that the king was wrong, both in his demand and in his response. Instead, Daniel asked for just a brief stay of execution. He said, you know, maybe, your majesty, with a bit more time, I can come up with the answer. If not, the decree stands. Daniel had nothing to lose in asking that, and by the way, the king had nothing to lose in extending that offer. The king would maybe get an answer to the question that really, really bothered him, and he really wanted to know the answer. I mean, it wasn't like the king had to about face. Daniel gave him the chance to save face by saying, I grant your request, but if you can't come up with that answer, of course, the end still goes. He didn't shoulder the responsibility alone either. He shared the need with his friends, got as much prayer support and encouragement with the issue as possible. And let's face it, no one has all the best thoughts, all the creative ideas, or all the possible solutions. Can Can I say that again? No one person has all the best thoughts All the most creative ideas are all the possible solutions. Helen Keller wrote, she said, Alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. History illustrates this point well. Did you know that after Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, he wanted to name it, are you ready for this, Improvement in Telegraphy? Now that's a bit cumbersome, isn't it? Hey, your Improvement in Telegraphy is ringing, you better answer. I'm sure glad the name telephone carried the day. Bell also argued, (laughs) he also argued that when answering the phone, you ought to pick it up and say, ahoy. (laughs) Thomas Edison is the one who suggested that a simple hello would suffice. Good call. Can you imagine every picking up the phone, ahoy. You see, Bell was a creative inventor and his invention literally did transform our ability to communicate across the land. But he didn't have all the best ideas on how to implement it. Thankfully, he consulted with others who had better ideas. You've heard it said before, two heads are better than one, it's true. By the way, Western Union, the telegraph company, had the opportunity, they had the first opportunity to buy the telephone, and some guy in management thought it had too many shortcomings, thought it was a mere toy, said that it would never be an efficient way to communicate with people. And so they turned down the opportunity to buy the telephone. I'm telling you, Western Union needed a team to work on that decision. Remember, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. And that truth shouldn't surprise us. Long before Alexander Graham Bell, the Scripture, told us that very truth. In Ecclesiastes, part of this wisdom literature, chapter 4, verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up, but pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. That's teamwork. Or how about Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen, Wisdom literature. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I believe that's one of God's purposes for the church. We are here to be a team, to help one another. When you look at all the descriptive terms of the church in Scripture, they they point to that. The church is called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, the army of God. In all of those pictures, it's about needing one another and working together to make it all happen. The church is never pictured as one standing alone against the world. We do better together. More important than wisdom and tact, Daniel knew that his only answer in the crisis was to be found in prayer. I don't know when they began praying, but the answer didn't come until the middle of the night. Don't, Don't miss that. Sometimes God's answers to our deepest struggles don't come until the darkest hours of our lives. Don't lose heart when you pray. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not now. Sometimes the answers don't come until the bottom seems to have fallen out of life. Just know that the Father knows best. I don't know. I don't always understand. I have questions about why some prayers aren't answered as we pray. I just know that God sees the future. He's got the big picture. Don't lose heart when the prayers don't come with an answer when you want. If you knew tonight was your last night, how would you spend it? Daniel anticipated it might be his, and he spent it praying, and that changed everything. I'm not suggesting that if you pray through the night, all your answers will come out victoriously. I'm just suggesting that prayer is the first priority in a crisis. Prayer is not the second ripcord on a parachute when the first one won't open. Prayer is the parachute. It is our salvation when everything else is lost. And they didn't pray for the king to change his mind, but that God would reveal the dream and its meaning. To say that Daniel and his friends were in hot water is an understatement. But then look again at what they did with the hot water. You you know this to be true, and, and you've heard this before, but it bears repeating at this moment. And that is if you take a potato, a firm, solid potato, and put it into hot water, it gets soft, it's mashable. You take an egg, put it in that same boiling hot water, and the egg becomes hard. You take a tea bag and drop it into that boiling water, and the water is what is changed. First time, it's the potato that's changed. Second time, it's the egg that's changed. But the third time, it's the water that's changed. You add some sugar and a slice of lemon, you got a real treat. Which describes you best? When you find yourself in adversity's hot water, do you start with firm convic- convictions and then soften and compromise with the world around you? Or are you more like an egg that starts off flexible but becomes hard and unyielding? Your exterior, like an egg, looks the same, but inwardly you've become bitter and obstinate. Or are you like the tea bag? As the hot water of adversity passes through your life, you release this divine fragrance and flavor the surroundings and the circumstances with the presence of God. When things are at their worst, you get better. You're patient with God to bring the goodness out of the adversity. Here's our goal as Christians. Instead of the circumstances changing us, let us change the circumstances for the better. That's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Now, take note, Daniel took time to thank God for the answer to prayer. By the way, thanking him is ever as important as asking him. Sometimes prayer is a request sheet. Sometimes prayer is a thank you note. Both are important. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says, during the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And Daniel never loses his perspective. You know, if I were going to the king, I'd say, I got it. I got it. I got the answer. The rest of you guys just stand back. Let me tell the king what he wants to know. Daniel approaches the king, and in verse 26, it says, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, are you ready for this? No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. You got it? Daniel says, no, sir, I don't have an answer for you. But God does. And he's trusted me with it. And here is what God is revealing to the king. Wow, such depth of humility. He never stopped giving credit to God. After all, God is the one that deserves it. Let us humbly follow that example. Here's the last thing, a revelation worth contemplating. So what was the dream? Well, the dream was basically this. It was a statue made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And then at the bottom, then the feet were uh, iron and clay mixed together. I think we have a picture of that statue here, uh, at least an artist's conception of that statue. The gold represents the kingdom of, of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. It was the greatest kingdom in the world at that time. And under Nebuchadnezzar, it reached its zenith. But it was eventually, about 60 years after this prophetic dream, was conquered by the Medes and the Persians. They were a great kingdom, but they never reached the same kind of glory that um, Babylon did. And so it is represented by the silver chest. And then, about 200 years later, Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered that portion of the world, and so that's the bronze. They were never as strong either. And then comes mighty Rome, Rome that ruled with an iron fist, thus the iron legs. But Rome had so much infighting over a period of time that in its last days, like the iron and the clay mixed together that could not hold together, Rome crumbled as well. So we see these four majestic kingdoms that rise and fall, and then comes the heartbeat of the dream in chapter 2, verse 44. And in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold into pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Do not miss this. In the final analysis, these four great epics of human history that we would look back on and say, wow, what kingdoms they were. God says, I will see them rise and I will see them fall. But this rock that was carved out of the mountain that came crashing down and destroying the statue is the kingdom of God, a kingdom not made by human hands, a kingdom that will endure, and it is the church. It is the church that will last forever and forever. God's kingdom supersedes all earthly kingdoms. Nothing can stand against the rock. And you can hear the words of Jesus echoing this dream when Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Kingdoms will rise and fall. Viruses will come and go. Wars and peace will ebb and flow. But the kingdom of God lasts forever. And it is only that kingdom that paves a way through the blood of Jesus Christ, confirmed by his resurrection, paid for by his crucifixion at the cross. It is only that kingdom that leads us on a path home are you part of that kingdom this morning Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church Did you know you can view any message from the past 6 years at socc.org/messages You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv